Hi there, and welcome to a special episode of Forefront 360. I'm Rich Chrisman. Today, I'll have the pleasure to interview Jason Barber, a Rochester, New York native and previous Forefront Festival artist and speaker. He's someone who's been a real inspiration to me as an artist and a person, as well as a staple of the Western New York art community. Recently returned from Europe, we brought him in to have a conversation about art, faith, and the necessity of civic engagement. This call is being recorded. Yeah, we call that, um, when we record the other accounts, we call that the sultry robot. <laughs> All right, so today I have Jason Barber with me. Hi, Jason. Hi. So Jason was involved with Forefront 2017, which was fantastic. And we put together a bio for him at that time. Let's see what's changed since then. We had, as a born and raised Rochesterian, Jason is no stranger in the ins and outs of the city that he loves. This familiarity with the arts and cultural development of the city is key to his passion for seeing and understanding great artists. He's part of the Wall Therapy New York Mural Festival core team. He also sits on three committees for the MAG Museum in Rochester that help promote the development of events and membership for millennials. He's also the gallery coordinator for the Rochester Brainery. Jason holds a master's degree in education from Roberts Wesleyan and a bachelor's degree in art history from SUNY Purchase. So, Jason, how accurate is that? Has things changed? Uh, a little. Um, I'm no longer doing stuff at the at the Brainery, and uh, I think I'm on one committee now at the MAC. But other than that, everything's about the same. <laughs> so, any, anything new we should know about you? Done anything awesome recently? Well, I'm currently working on a show with uh, Cordell Cordaro. It's my first show ever, which I'm nervous as hell. Uh, and Cordell is, uh, an amazing supportive friend and artist, and he's kind of really pushing me to kind of show my work, not just my photography, but my actual art. So it's going to be really cool. And it's, it's dealing mainly with us growing up in the city. And I, I feel like for us, we've kind of talked about it. It's kind of an exercise in a lot of, pa- of our past and saying, here's our family, here's issues, here's kind of like going back and exploring aspects of our, our, our childhood and even childhood before, like just our parents and our, our grandparents and just growing that all grew up and lived in the city. So it's a lot of kind of exploration into our own, our own personal family. And I, it's, it's been, it's been kind of therapeutic. And I think for in some ways, like I said, exercise in our frustrations and understandings of how we've been and grown up in this environment. Cause it's a lot of, for us, it started off with the idea that, we watched a lot of people who are grew up in the suburbs and then come to the city and they love the city, but we have a unique uh, point of view of the city. Like we grew up in a city when it wasn't great to live in downtown Rochester. Yeah. So our, it's, it's like a bittersweet and kind of self, you know, like exploration of our own understanding of living downtown. Cause the one thing that always gets annoyed, Cordell and I like to joke that we sometimes, just get annoyed at everybody like this is such an amazing city I'm like it is but yet you didn't you you didn't see it when it was even better you know when it was great you know when midtown existed and when the neighborhoods existed when there was these great communities of people and since then they've kind of scattered to the suburbs and you know it's not that dense sense of community and it's kind of missing and disappeared in the city and it's a especially uh, ethnic community. If you're Italian or Cuban, like both Cordell and I, and like have we're both uh, like we have this different this uh, different perspective on it. That's very interesting, especially for me. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I grew up in Rochester, New York too, but I grew up in the suburb of Webster. So 
I uh, I didn't really I can sort of echo what you're saying because I didn't really spend much time downtown at all until I was a senior in high school. So you know, for me, even saying like I grew up in Rochester, that's really not even true. You know, I grew up <laughs> outside of Rochester, so that that's super interesting to me. So what um what kind of work might we see there? Well, you're going to see a mix of different stuff. You're going to be seeing paintings that Cordell's done on his own childhood, as well as his recent uh, missions trip to Haiti. You're going to be seeing, for me, uh, reinterpretations of old family photos based in with gold leaf, paint, watercolor, and charcoal, uh, as well as my own personal photos. And uh, we're, I'm working on a little video projection of my family. So like some old Super 8 film that my grandfather had digitized. So I'm, we're just that's going to be projected throughout the whole the whole space. The space is going to be inside the old Bank of America building. Uh, the Galenas were so gracious enough to give us a whole floor on the ninth floor. So it's an old uh, office building that's been stripped of everything. The wall's been stripped. The floor's been stripped. It's a very unique space. And for both of us, we really wanted to create this, this story of indelible reflection. You know, it, like we're trying to reflect on our own lives, our own and our, our fa- and the lives of our families. And it's so one of the aspects of it is we're going to be working on trying to create this golden thread that's going to connect family photos to our own artwork to different stuff. Like we we want to integrate even the family photos that we're using as references. So actually, a friend of mine, uh, Stay Monty, kind of suggested the idea is like you grew up in an Hispanic home, you know how the walls look and they're covered with family photos. And uh, ironically, most of the family photos my grandparents have are gold framed. So it's actually kind of perfect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we're just, yeah. So, uh, so like, it's just a sense of connecting to those memories and those childhoods. And it's, it's like connecting a string and we have these huge windows that oversee all the city. So you kind of see Parcel 5, Sibley Building, all the way down Main Street. And it's really cool space that I am so honored that the Galenas gave it to us for free. <laughs> wow, that is really awesome. So you mentioned, I thought of this when you mentioned Super 8 film. So you, you grew up, so where specifically did you grow up in Rochester? Do you have any connection with like Kodak or anything like that? Yes, I grew up in Maplewood in Edgerton Park. Uh, so like I, my parents, my grandparents, uh, all worked at Kodak, and uh, my grandfather was an industrial designer. My dad worked uh, for the government branch, uh, both at Hawkeye as well as the, at Kodak Park, and later at Elm Grove. So I've I've always been around, uh, around the park. It's more my identity than anything else. And I think for me, it's the legitimate heart of Rochester. And people think, well, it's downtown. I'm like, no, Kodak Park pumped every vein of every aspect of the city. You know, wow. even even the reasons like car, we get car commercials at certain times of the, the year is because that's when the bonuses came out. You know, like it's when the banks run, or even the main banks in Rochester are related to Kodak. Everything we exist in this city that we think is identity of, Kodak, of Rochester has some connection to Maplewood and to the park. Wow. And I think uh, I think for me, I'm very... I'm very prideful of that because it's it's something uh, that I respect. And actually, Kodak actually donated me a few rolls of film to shoot, so I didn't have to pay for it. So I've been using Kodak film. And the original shot was done by my grandfather. He shot at least 15 years of footage 
it's about two hours long of of just growing up in the Edgerton neighborhood of, on Finch Street, right? And it, it just shows from my grandparents' wedding all the way to, like, my dad's confirmation. So it's, like, a good 15 years of, of just, like, the history of that neighborhood and that environment. And it's really well edited, surprisingly. I've actually shown it to a few of my photographer friends and video friends, and they're they're like, man, your grandfather was really good. And he shot and edited it all as part of the Kodak Camera Club. Oh, so really? All, yeah. So, like, he was part of the Kodak Camera Club. He actually did quit in the 70s because uh, – actually, 68 – because they he he got some water damage during Hurricane Camille on one of the cameras, and Kodak was like, "Well, sorry, we can't replace it." And he's like, he took out insurance, and it was stupid, just stupid lie. <laughs> but he's like, "I quit." Yeah, like I'm no longer be part of the Kodak Camera Club. But uh, he, uh, you know, like he did edit all that stuff there, like with all the equipment they would have in the basement, which well, is still that's... there actually. Most of the equipment is still in the basement of the Kodak Park. So it's really cool. Yeah, that's been really great. I've also seen. I've seen that uh, a lot of some social media people, you know, from Rochester and also just the Kodak Camera Club now has shown us like on Instagram, some, some insights into Kodak that I've never seen before. So interestingly, my Rochester background is connected to Xerox because my, yeah, my (laughs) grandpa was an engineer for Xerox. And for about 10 years, he was the liaison between for Xerox with Fujifilm in Japan. So that that's really interesting and uh i don't know i I love (laughs) yeah i love how these two (laughs) companies really do kind of like they are the lifeblood for the city so let me ask you if and i totally agree with you that kodak really was the heart and pumped that blood so what what in your experience what happened to the body when kodak started downsizing and went uh bankrupt i think uh growing up if you, I was in college and just graduating high school. Well, mainly I was starting my master's degree right around the time of the bankruptcy. And to watch the city was to see a city that was kind of losing its understanding of itself. And I think even to this day, we think like, you know, we, we have a lot of issues we see in our Instagram accounts. People are very prideful about being in Rochester, but I still think they don't, fully there's a full it's it's a very temporal thing i don't know if the kids that we see now are going to stay you know Mm -hmm. you know if the economy goes down it's going to change and i think what what i witnessed was people leaving you know i watched i watched people kind of disappear and i watched people try to get out of this city as fast as they can and also a lot of people kind of looking at it from like who we are like what like what is this like like what's our identity post kodak post Xerox, you know, downsizing, post Bosch and Lawn being bought off, you know, like these were the identity for my parents, my grandparents. And I think a lot of, I know for Cordell and I, we've talked about it. It was the identity of our own childhood. So like, you know, there was always some relation to one of those companies, you know, if it was our dads playing it, you know, in a mural leagues or, you know, like, or just being at the parks or being at, at, at like events for Kodak. Uh, I remember literally having the Kodak race car uh, in my driveway because my dad knew the guys who ran the the Kodak race car team, like who worked on the pit crew. So like, you know, like that, that affected a lot of people. And everybody has these stories. Everybody has these stories if they grew up here, you know, and I, even the people who live in the suburbs have these like strong connections. And I don't know, 
I still don't know right now what our identity is. And I think because when the body, when the heart kind of slowed down pumping, like everybody downtown th- thought themselves as the new heart of the city. And I don't really think they are yet because you have to realize industry died. There was a, a job force that literally gave jobs to everybody. You know, you can have a high, a high school degree and get a job making thirty-five to 40000 a year right out of high school. Yeah. You know, this was for 60, you know, not just at Kodak, at Xerox and Bosch and Lom, you know, and they trained you, they worked it, you, you know, and I think we think that didn't, you know, had no effect, but it did, you know, like there's neighborhoods in Rochester that have, that haven't recovered in the last 10 to 15 years. My own neighborhood has disappeared. It's been abandoned in some ways by the city itself, by the, even the city government, you know, they've said, well, you know, we don't care really about it, you know, and those people who work, lived and worked there for you know, uh, who for 50 years, so there was 60. I know my own family lived in the neighborhood since the 1920s. Wow. You know, so, and all those all those people, they left. They disappeared in the early uh, in the, the early 90s into the early 2000s. And when the Kodak started downsizing by the late 90s and early 2000s, it was like mass exodus. And uh, you can see it. You can see it in a lot of these neighborhoods: Maplewood, Edgerton, Hudson. Uh, like you can just. Go to these neighborhoods, and even the one four six two one neighborhood over by Seneca Park. Beautiful homes that are just now vacant, like pro- homes that are would, that are bigger and more beautiful than on Park Ave downtown. And people are yeah. sitting there going, they can't sell them, you know. So and you realize what's wrong with this city when there's people downtown saying it's the greatest city in the world, but people, you know, in the same city, like right across the street or right across the river, that can't even sell their homes or their homes are falling apart. So it's, it's, to me, it's a hard, it's an interesting kind of dilemma. The, yeah. Not dilemma, like reality. It's the, the dual, the duality of our city that has happened since the, the collapse of Kodak. Like, because when Kodak was around that, you know, people in these communities were somehow connected to it. You know, their businesses, you know, some of the small businesses were all connected in some way to one of these companies. You know, like even for Xerox, when they started downsizing at Webster, you could see in Webster businesses that would just go out of business. Yeah. You know, and it, it happens and it's happened all over the city. And I think people haven't really figured out and the city hasn't really figured out how to kind of get back. But the problem with Rochester is they think they know better than they actually yeah, they are. They're very smug. Uh, yeah. Hence the name Smugtown, New York. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, I think that this I think that you have such a uh I think the insight that you're giving is going to prove to be so valuable. I think that this sort of thing is going to be in the history books in the future because I think that uh sort of what what you've experienced firsthand in Rochester, I think we're seeing in a lot of places across the northeast. I mean, I live uh you know, I'm one of these people that you're talking about that left and it makes me feel bad. But I uh I live in Pittsburgh now and I I'm seeing a similar thing uh, you know, Pittsburgh is famously rebounding with like a tech boom, but outside of the tech boom, which is employing only very specifically trained, you know, highly educated young people, you know, outside of that, the steel industry has moved to China and uh-huh. you know, a, a city that once employed practically an entire city on, you know, a high school diploma and the willingness to work uh, now that's left a giant vacancy. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that we would see similar things if we looked at, you know, Buffalo and 
Cleveland and Detroit and stuff. So I think that uh, we really are in kind of like an iconic age right now. Yeah, but that does scare me because these tech jobs are could go with the economy. Oh know? yeah, and that I think what what Pittsburgh did really good is they did spend years training some of those steel workers to be ready for these jobs. And I don't think we did we didn't do that here in Rochester. And I think it creates a very interesting cultural divide and racial divide as well as like economic divide in our city because Pittsburgh. They did years of it. You know, they, they were smart. They saw it coming, and they knew that they had to educate people. And that's why I admire how Pittsburgh handled it. But uh, I don't think we handled it in the same way. I don't think our community college structure, a lot of other places, just were ready to, to retrain a new workforce for these jobs. And also, most of these jobs are straight out of college students. They're young. They're computer savvy. You can't have a 50, 60, 70-year-old or 40-year-old or, 30, you know, even 35-year-olds who've worked in these jobs uh you know kind of transfer their skills into it because it's almost right. impossible so and i do feel like if the economy has another bubble that could change a lot and these people can move to another city that's having that kind of like a uh, job renaissance and i don't know if rochester i, I mean I'm, i know i'm sounding very cynical but i i just this is what happens if you're growing up in rochester you know like there's a yeah. sense of cynicism that I never understood until I got in my 30s. And my, now I understand my grandfather and my father a lot better. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just this reality that our smugness often gets the best of us and our leadership and our government. And I think that's something that I've tried to talk about in my photography. But the thing is, for, for me, being part of wall therapy, being part of a lot of these art groups, a lot of them are outsiders. They're not from Rochester and they see that we have to come together as a community and they look at, they look for that community of outsiders to kind of do something great. And that is what blows me away about the art scene in this town is because a lot of outsiders kind of brought a bunch of people together to look at their city in a different way and in a new way. And it gave uh, the cynics that always like me and a lot of other people who just watched it kind of go up and down or just, you know, just like big ideas and big dreams. And then like hard hit by the realities of our times. And I think these guys have to say, okay, who cares? Let's just do what we want to do and let's create something beautiful. doesn't matter if the city hates that the city doesn't ever gives us money or does something. It just it doesn't matter. Let's create. And I think that's had a more lasting impact in our city, especially amongst populations of people your age. Like, I think you guys see it create a freedom in Rochester and in other cities. Because, but I, but I think here, it's it's something why I know you guys push the forefront. Uh, it's just because I think a lot of it is due to these outsiders kind of influencing uh, like our city and influencing the younger artists, the younger creatives, and saying you guys can do more. Let me ask you then. Well, actually, before I ask the next question, kind of drive us in that direction. Just, uh, just for, so our listeners know, I really want to come see your show. I'm sure a lot of people will want to come to the show. So when, when is the, you and Cordell show again? Oh, it's going to be May 11th at the bank of America building on the ninth floor. So right below the penthouse on one East Ave. Okay. Awesome. And then uh, for those of you that didn't know, Cordell is the uh, founder and point man of Art House Press Magazine, which we've talked about before. So just throwing that shout out out there. 
Okay, cool. So Jason, let me ask you this. Um, so you're talking about sort of these people coming in from the outside and helping to transform things. And you're talking about the importance of community. So would you speak to how you feel about the arts and civic engagement? Ah, good question. I, you know, uh, to me, uh, as a Christian, I think, I, I feel that we have this huge importance as creatives um, to get more involved with our community and community organizations, art-based programs. I, I, I feel like, and I've talked to you before about this, it's a sense of we are trapping ourselves in these kind of creative, for, you know, these churches that are kind of like fortresses into themselves, you know, like, they we want to build a strong community here in this church we want to, we want our artists and our creatives to to be tools to to illustrate the importance of god in our sermons but the thing is like these artists and creatives are also servants you know they're servants of god yeah. and i think i think one of the issues that i struggle with and i've i've watched it with a lot of these uh i've got to you know talk and have these discussions with artists and and um, you know, successful artists and different, and, but I also, I, I, it always comes back to this issue of we should be doing more for others. You know, I mean, some artists are very egotistical and vain, but like the artists that I've admired and I've developed really strong relationships with, even the one I was just out with in Berlin, um, owner Dink, it's a sense of, okay, my art is meant for people to, to understand, but I also want to push and create others to understand, like, they, they have it in themselves. And trying to, to word it the best I can, I think uh, what I see happening in the churches is that we have this huge creative force of people in some churches, or some, sometimes some churches don't have any, or they, you know, they think they have, uh, or they, they burn them out, they, you know, tire them, they feel exhausted. They're very sensitive people. These are people who are very spiritually sensitive, and I think when they're used as almost tools uh, for just a sermon or a sermonette. Uh, yeah, or sometimes even like for marketing purposes. For marketing. And like, yeah, I mean, I mean, there are some churches that have amazing marketing teams that actually real marketing teams want those people. And yeah. they hire them after they leave the church. Yeah. So, it's, and, it, and it's, what gets me is that your job as a church is to say, okay, you're great, but we need to push these to be people not just to be, these people need to be the strong servants in those fields outside the church and not inside the church. Yeah. And then as soon as we keep dragging them and using their skills inside the church so we can get more people to come to the church, uh, we're using them. We're not letting them actually try and not training them to actually be the servants out there, you know, and to care for the outsiders and care and be, and realize they are one, you know, like the problem yeah. is we all, we often think ourselves as, different than the other people but we really god is not saying you're different you're you're exactly the same as these people and we these people who are struggling with issues a lot of these creative and people in these worlds ha have a lot of issues that they've gone through and they have a lot of issues with the church they have a lot of issues with people within the church and because of lack of understanding because of lack of love because of lack of just compassion you know, it, it, it's so many different scenarios. I know from personal experience, every time I've talked about my, if I've talked about my faith, when I've talked about my faith, sorry, with uh, fellow Christians, it, it, like with, and different artists, especially not Christian artists, it always comes back to a story in which someone hurt them. 
Oh yeah. Someone I can, I can echo that too. Someone, someone like did this. And to me, it's the most heartbreaking story because that person who did that looked at them as a tool or as a way, as a witness in like a person of, you know, like they had to reach out to and not look. And that person who, who did that have to almost look at themselves as an outsider who's broken, you know, yeah. who has the same broken, poor person, you know, uh, God talks about that, you know, the, the poor will be among us always. The problem is Christians think they're not the poor. Yeah. And the problem is they are the same as them. Yeah. And when we start having this like very cliquish like attitude that we're not the spiritually poor as everybody else outside these outside the church walls, then we we create a structure that's detrimental. And a lot of it is you know, I have friends who are, you know, who's like, why are the church doing this, this, this issue? Why isn't the church not doing this issue? Why isn't that church or this people or these Christians not standing up for justice? And I think what, why the creative community sometimes are very passionate into talking about justice and talking about racial issues and poverty and um, just trying to deal with this stuff is because the church has dropped a ball on it. You know, Americans, Christians, they're not blaming the full church. I'm just saying American Christians. We've dropped the ball on it. Yeah. And and uh, I think, like, that's something to me that has, like, I, it bothers me. It hurts, you know. But I, I also have been blessed that I come from a family uh, that that really cares for everybody who feels like they're on the fringe. I mean, my friends who are artists love my mother more than they love me sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> because my mom just embraces them as part of the family, you know. It doesn't matter what they look like or how they act. They, she just is like, I love it, you know? And I think that attitude has, is something I've been blessed to have. And I think it's something that is very hard for a lot of Christians to have because we want to be in a very safe, safe culture. And the world isn't safe. And Jesus doesn't, and the disciples don't show us that. They, 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 they show it all the time. Yeah, you know? Christ, like, never, Christ never promised safety or comfort or that we would only you know hang out with our you know whatever quote unquote our own he actually suggested the opposite you know get get yeah. out there and be with the people and get in the mud yeah. you know yeah we don't want to get dirty we don't yeah. we, we don't want we don't want to get dirty we don't want to really uh suffer and i think uh and feel the pain of other people and suffer like we want to feel controlled pain we want to pray for that person or do with this and to me, like, I've seen it personally here amongst a lot of the roster artists and a lot of the people who are in charge of the community. There's one individual who I admire and respect and honor, actually two, but, like, uh, that have constantly illustrated. One is not even a Christian. One is, but, like, uh, I mean, they have their own view on religion. It may be completely different, and I love them for whatever views they have. But they have constantly showed compassion and love and giving of themselves constantly to this community. And it's just a community that constantly, like that only gives those individuals a want to give more. And even when I was in Berlin, I was being handed gifts for these people. You know, they're like, this man, like this leader, this person loves me. You know, like, I, I have to, like, I have to show them because, you know, and they still reach out to them, you know, not just as an artist, they just reach out to them to see how their lives are doing. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And uh, I admire that. And I, I realize that's such a Christian attitude 
that I don't even see in pastors. And I, I, it angers me sometimes. It bothers me sometimes. And I say, what's the issue with that? Like, well, because we want a controlled, safe culture, you know? And, like, Paul didn't do that. Paul lived as a tent maker, making tents on the outskirts of the city. He didn't become some big-name pastor, you know, wearing the nice clothes and the fancy shirts, having a great Instagram account. You know, like he didn't yeah. do that. Neither did Peter. Neither did any of the disciples. Neither did any of the first pastors. Like, you know, neither did St. Francis or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or any of these people we talk about in such glorious light. You know, they didn't do any of that. You know? yeah. And I think, you know, and some of the greatest artists that, you know, showcase Christian faith are men who are completely broken and have just given over to the community. Like Hank Williams died in the back of a car, but to me, some of his songs are the best Christian songs ever. Johnny Cash. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, the most broken Christian and it will say it, you know, but yet I think he's had more of an impact on life than sometimes Billy Graham has. And uh, I think people can talk about him being a Christian, you know, and then, you know, then like any other pastor. And I, I think, like these artists and these creatives, they they were willing to show that they're broken men and women, and it doesn't matter if they preached and evangelized to the top of the lungs. They didn't have to. That by just showing that love through their brokenness, they they impacted more lives than a pastor who does an amazing sermon every Sunday. So, so, so what if you could like kind of summarize in a sentence or two? What do you think Christian artists? <laughs> What should we do when we're out in the community as Christian artists? What are some things that we can do to do better, you know, get where we need to be? I think it's a sense of knowing that you're you're not always going to know where you're going to be, you know? Mm -hmm. And as a creative, you have to constantly uh, empty of yourself to, to God and to, to just kind of figure it out. You know, I know right now for me, that's the period where I'm at. So it's a sense of saying, I don't know anymore. And I'm just going to have to make the leap. And that's, the, that's what I have to say. That's the one sentence is you have to start making the leaps. And I'm not saying go do it because of the selfish reason. No, do it because you have, it's spiritually, you have to do it. You know, that it's part, you're either positing yourself off in a community or you're either holding yourself off and you just need to kind of just jump and find uh, and be wise to that community, but also be aware that you have to help develop it yourself. You know, you're not, you know, looking constantly searching. You're, you're, you're doing the work every day and it's making that leap is, is the hardest thing. Get out of our comfort zones. <laughs> yes, please yeah. get out of your comfort zone. And I mean, why do you think I just went off to Europe? <laughs> yeah. I had to get out of my comfort zone. I had to get away from Rochester. I had to get away from, what I, my norm. And if I didn't, then I would have kind of constantly feel this angsty pain and this issue of just like uh, that I'm feeling like trapped. That's great. So what, so I know you just, you've, uh, we've talked about this, but for the listeners, where did you just uh, travel to? So I just literally got back yesterday. I was, I had 10 days of kind of exploring around Europe. I started off in Lisbon for a day and then most of the time I, I was in Vienna, Austria, and I uh, went to Berlin to visit some of my, my uh, real friends, and then a day in Prague. Very cool. Do you, is there anything, uh, how, I mean, how's the art scene over there 
uh, in comparison to what you see here in the States? Is there any, uh, uh well, I, uh, compared to Rochester, compared to the States. I mean, if you're in New York city, it's still a big art scene. If you're to some of, but like the smaller cities that we live in, uh, we're not that important. <laughs> right. That's, that's what I've learned from being in Berlin or Vienna. It's like, you're not the, the, uh, excuse my French, the shit. Yeah. You know, like uh-huh. you are. And I think if you think you are and you're a complete idiot. And I yeah, think uh, maybe a dose <laughs> of humility think, as well as getting out of our comfort zones. <laughs> yeah. Like realize that you are not like, that's the thing I, I struggle with being Christian creatives. Like because you're in such a small community, you think you're the biggest creative in the world. And um, if you think just because you have a large amount of followers on Instagram and you want to do a live story about your art, you know, like, be willing that like it's really kind of meaningless when you look at the you know when you're surrounded by communities that have been doing this for 200 400 years you know that have called uh, you know when you're walking by paintings uh, uh you know that'll just blow your mind but a lot of it like even to me like being in europe uh europe has understood that like great art comes from great community of people that are constantly pushing each other like you can be in a room with a bunch of Gustav Klimt's, but you can talk to any art historian that like Klimt had other people that he was competitive with, that he worked with. There was this beautiful clock tower that he helped design with a friend, you know? And this is like, you watch it and you're just sitting there going like, this is amazing. This is a beautiful piece of public art, you know, that everyone walks by every day. But he did that, you know, he did that for the public. You know, of course he got paid for it. Cause yeah. But it was a sense of like, that's something you don't ever see a Christian artist because churches don't ever pay us. But, yeah. uh, like, uh, I think, uh, like, that to me was very blown up. Like, I was kind of witnessing that there's always these creative communities that push each other to do something better. And that's what I saw in Europe. And I don't know. It was uh, it was a great trip. That's great. So maybe we need to stop thinking so much about ourselves and how maybe our particular art is going or how our personality is being shown either like on social media or in person and sort of allow ourselves to be, you know, to sort of point, point the light on the community as a whole and not on us specifically. And mm-hmm. I, I find that really interesting. I think that in, in my own life, just as, you know, like an amateur artist and writer, I think that everything that I've been the most happy with and the most proud of um, has been created when I was like deeply entrenched in a community and also a community that uh, sort of like you said about European art communities reaches back a lot farther than myself. You know, like when I was getting criticism on writing from professors who have been writing and reading for, you know, far longer than I've been alive, you know, so yeah. So not being an Island to ourselves uh, is sort mm-hmm. of what I'm hearing you say, which is great. And I think a lot of it also is be willing to keep working even during the hard times because you're constantly being around these artists. They're constantly working and they don't care that they don't see themselves as some high ideal. Like they, they have some, you know, but like, you know, I was talking to one of an owner, you know, he does these amazing murals for very little, but he also does public work in which he has to be paid that pays the bills. You know, and he'll tell me, just I'm all like, well, owner, like, what, what do you think about this artist? And he just does this ephemeral stuff. And he's all like, well, he's not paying the bills. He's not living a life. You know, he's thinking himself really important when the reality is 
to be a creative is to still be a servant. You know, you're still working like a farmer every day for something. And some days that product may not be the best, you know, the you may not have the best crop or the best harvest. And some days you have the most bountiful harvest. And I think like that's how you as, as us as artists, we have to constantly do. I struggle with it like crazy, you know, like I'm constantly just pushing myself to do something and to constantly create, you know, even if I don't like it, just to keep creating and keep drawing and, uh, you know, like, and keep taking photos and keep taking stuff that I don't always like. And not, I don't care as much about the followers and the likes and the images that, you know, like I just, I don't care that I have to just brag about myself and, you know, think how great my life is because my life is, it's a struggle. And it's, I think that's something that's great. And that's why the Psalms are some of the greatest works of art ever created because it's the daily struggles of a king. Yeah. Like it's his rage, his anger. And then he makes it public art. He makes them sing it. You know, you realize and you're like, you just said that I'm angry at you, God, or uh, you know, I want you to murder my enemies of a thousand arrows, and you're asking the whole congregation of Israel to sing this song. <laughs> yeah, you know, like yeah. what? Like if a if a worship leader is saying that today, even if like a, like he would be kicked out of church the next day. Yeah, I don't think I think God wants you to write songs about divorce. He wants you to write songs about pain. He wants you to write about those struggles and those doubts. And those issues, he wants you to create photos and uh, plays and painting and whatever, like just about who you are. And I think like that's so illustrated in the Bible. Like the Psalms is the perfect, and Ecclesiastes too are the perfect examples of writing that are just completely broken. And they influence everybody from Hemingway to you know Scott Fitzgerald, like just the you know to painters like Picasso, like. Like you, you realize that these stories are constantly written because people go back to it because they're yeah. human. They're human people. Like they're ephemeral, messed up, you know, people. They're not thinking themselves this ideal idol of them, you know, like, or maybe one thing that maybe the thing that we lack so much in sort of, again, I'll put this in quotes, but like the Christian arts community is just honesty. Because we we tend to make all this stuff that avoids the reality of being a human being. And we act almost as though as a Christian, we're somehow like separated from the pains and struggles and failures and whatnot of being a human, where in reality, we are absolutely not. And I think that, you know, if you listen to, you know, I knock this all the time, but if you listen to like, you know, Caleb or, you know, things like that, you'll, you'll get this. You know, if you were an alien from another planet, you would get this sense from, you know, a lot of Christian artists that life is just great as a Christian, you know. <laughs> and it's sad. I'm sorry. Yeah. I keep thinking, I keep, there's a really good podcast uh, by a fellow Forefront speaker, Barry Cooper. Uh, oh, yeah. Who, uh, he did one about this, and he, he, he asked the question to, like, uh like why is christian art so bad and it's because we often think of it as a way as as an evangelical outreach or a sermonette and i think it's it's not supposed to be that way i think the greatest forms of art that have spoken to people it doesn't matter if they're christian or not christian or have been 
by people who are very openly about how broken they are, you know, how like the struggles they've gone through, you know, like to me, Shakespeare as is, can be as Christian as, you know, like any play ever. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think, I think why we like Tolkien is because Tolkien kind of deals with humanity. It doesn't, he doesn't deal with these long sermons. He deals with the issues of morals and morality, you know? And I think that's what, struggles with Christian movies and Christian songs is they're, they're, they're constantly seeing themselves as a way to either praise and find the joy in the, in our faith, which is great. But if you look, go back to the Psalms, the Psalms have one moment of like a few moments of praise in them and then moments of self-doubt and moments of reflection of moments of, uh, you know, like of pain, you know, and, like that's a real prayer. That's an illustrative prayer to us, like how, how we're supposed to even talk to God. And I think like there's more humanity and more morality in that. And I think that's something that is missing in all this, in, in all this. And I think like for me as a, as a visual artist, I struggle with it because I've been asked and it's one of my biggest insecurities is when somebody asks me like, oh, can you do this for our sermon? And I'm like, no, I can't. Because you should be doing it. <laughs> like, like I want to do something bigger. Like, tell if you gave me that freedom and that, that ability to create something beyond myself and to push me and to be supportive, which Cordell is doing right now, you know, like, as a fellow Christian, he's pushing me to do something beyond myself. He doesn't have to, doesn't need to. He's already a successful artist. Like, yeah. he doesn't have to do that, but he's doing that because he respects me and respects my work, you know? And I think... But he also realizes that I have to find it myself. I don't know if he actually realizes that. I, I'm just probably putting words in his mouth. But he'll probably listen to this and be like, yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, but, Cordell, if you're listening to this, go ahead and sound you know, off in the comments. <laughs> I'll send it to him and see what he thinks. All right. Thanks. He's not on Facebook. <laughs> All right, cool. All right. Well, we're almost out of time. Is there anything else uh, that you'd like to share with us, Jason, before uh, we got to move on? Don't be afraid of that you're an outsider. I think all of us as Christians who are creative automatically feel like we're outsiders and, you know, we don't fit in really well. And that's funny because Barry mentions that in his podcast too, that like he, here, here's a man who runs a Christian, you know, in speech and does sermons all the time, but he doesn't feel like he's connected. Like he's, you know, he's, he's an outsider even to his own community. Like, and I think don't be afraid of that. And look at them as the same way that, you know, we're just a bunch of broken people and that we need each other to do something great. And a lot of it is you have to step out of the four walls of the building you're in and look at the world as this greater place, you know, that, and you have to understand that the pain and the suffering and the trials will come, but they are meant for a reason. And yeah. I don't know. That's that's my final note, and that's a bittersweet note. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us. I feel like there is so much uh, solid gold in this conversation we just had. So thanks so much, Jason. (laughs) Thank you. And for you listeners' reference, that podcast that we mentioned a few times is called Cooper and Carrie Have Words. That's by Barry Cooper. You can look that up on iTunes, Google Play, or CastBox also. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of the Forefront 360 podcast. Listen to our other episodes and check us out at ForefrontFestival.com. Keep creating, 
keep building that community. We'll talk to you next time.